Hi guys, it's Dr. Casperson coming to you from Washington State, and this is episode two with me and Tracy doing some questions and answers. Hope you guys enjoyed the first one. We're going to jump right into this one, um, and thank you for listening to You Are Not Broken, where we discuss surgery, science, and a re-education for women about their pelvis and their sexuality. So topics today are, we're just going to start right off the bat with how do you bring up sexually transmitted diseases into your new relationships, um, more on medications and their sexual side effects, important stuff like sexual desire mismatch, um, how do you explore sexual boundaries, and then here's a big one, I think we really hit on something, um, how, what do you do when you've been faking orgasms? And how do you how do you move on or move past that or talk to your partner about that um, advice for someone who is scared to have sex for the first time? And then what do you do with competing sex drives in a relationship? So thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your reviews. It means the world to me. Hope you guys are doing well and staying healthy and enjoy uh, episode two of two with me and Tracy doing our question and answers. This, there's a question here. How do you bring up STIs and testing in a new relationship or hookup without it being awkward? Um, boy, that's a really common, it's super common thing on people's minds. I think, I mean, practice makes perfect, right? So if you're ever nervous or awkward about saying something out loud, you just start saying it out loud in private to yourself. You practice it in the shower or wherever else of like, and, and you know, frame them as far as you being concerned for each other's health instead of you being concerned that, you know, somebody, the way you phrase it, I think is very important. Um, and you can just, you know, start by saying my health is very important to me. One way I take care of myself is, is testing myself for sexually transmitted infections before the start of a new relationship. So you make it about you, you make it about your, yourself and you kind of establish that boundary right away. Um, and then that person can choose to join you or they can choose not to join you. Um, but you've you've given yourself your the importance of taking care of yourself, which is ultimately uh, what should be very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And making it to um, we talk about this both in terms of um, screening, so with clients uh, at the health center or in therapy practice, um, it's good to uh, ask people the same questions and let them know. Like I ask everyone this. So in this situation too, like making it, making it standard, right? Like I just, uh, I ask everyone about this before I have sex. Um, or I don't have sex without condoms or just something that feels like a, a way of making it, um, part of your standard practice, uh, I think can help save you from feeling like, Oh, I have to, I have to really think about this every time and, and make some decision. It's just, it's just standard practice. Um, the other thing I think about is how much we want to avoid awkwardness. And I have talked with many people who uh, are more likely to take the risk of getting an STI than take the risk of experiencing momentary awkwardness. And um, I, I think there's something, I don't know, something culturally, where we need to kind of get over that a little bit and just accept that some of this stuff is awkward. Uh, I mean, I talk with people about sex all the time as a profession, and there are still many times in my own life where some things feel a little awkward, and that's part of relationships and part of being a person 
who cares about, you know, other people. So I, I think that there's probably some good work to do on just um, getting more comfortable with awkwardness and accepting that that's often a part of these kinds of experiences in life. I really like that. I like that a lot. And, and I think the other thing, you know, for me personally is to empower women to, number one, take control of yourself. Number two, take control of the boundaries and what you are willing and what you are not willing to do. And if you are not willing to sleep with somebody who's not willing to get tested, that is a excellent boundary to have. Um, but people don't know your boundaries if you don't voice your boundaries. Um, and so part of that awkward conversation is you saying, you know, this is important to my health. Feel free to join me or, or not. Um, and it's just a, a strong, confident, empowered woman. Establish it up front. You're just going to be all the, all the stronger because you know you stuck, you know, you did that for yourself. You did that for the relationship. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Uh, so this is a good, this is a good medical question for you, Kelly. Um, my partner uses SSRIs, which is a category of antidepressant medications. Mm-hmm. Right? And their benefits are amazing for her. Well, except for the effects on her libido, which can make orgasms much more infrequent. What should I know about SSRIs and the effects they might be having on her body so that I can better understand what my partner is going through and how can I help in facilitating a happy sex life for her? Awesome question. Um, so SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and it's a very common form of antidepressant that is given in America. So what's serotonin, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor? What that means is it keeps serotonin in your brain longer. And so that's how it works as an antidepressant. But, and, and or but, um, serotonin is the break on sexual interest, sexual desire, and orgasmic satisfaction. Uh, Dopamine is the accelerator. So basically you're putting in more break in your brain as far as sexual, not performance is the wrong word, but as far as sexy time Mm -hmm. goes. So that is a, and, and so that's why it has that side effect is because it's purposefully putting more serotonin circulating in the brain, which makes you not interested in sex or might make a delay to orgasm or orgasm impossible. So to the most important thing to do is to realize that's a known and very common side effect. And then to have the person have that conversation with the doctor who's prescribing it, because a couple of options are trying a different antidepressant or even trying a different medication on top of that antidepressant to kind of counteract the side effects. So that's kind of the general of like, yes, it's a known side effect. Yes, there are options, but you have to discuss them with your individual physician. Um, And that's where I would start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's some, uh, I would encourage advocacy as a patient too. You know, sometimes we, there's there's an order of priorities in terms of what we what we think about as health and healthcare and what's most important. And I think people's sexual concerns often are not really prioritized medically, right? Um, that these other things, mental health and, and other things, um, might always be considered much more important. So I think for folks who really want to make these sexual concerns a higher priority, there can be a need to do some self-advocacy with a provider to say, hey, this is actually, this is a big deal for me too. Um, and and help them to understand that, that this actually needs another look, even though it might be really effective at treating some of the other symptoms and 
and problems that they're having, that there could be, there could be a middle ground, there could be other medications to try, um, but to just advocate to put those sexual concerns on the radar um, when uh, some providers might not, uh, might not see them as being as important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and doctors um, won't, they won't always bring up every single side effect. If you've ever read the labels on side effects for medications, it's, you know, tons and tons and tons. So, you know, for you to find out, hey, these are the side effects I'm experiencing, it's unique for every person, and you truly have to be your own advocate to say, hey, I'm worried about this, or this is very important for me, what else, what are my options? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just love, also, I just want to really call out what a lovely question that was, and the way that, you know, already I have a feeling that... um, because of the way the question is asked, how can I help in facilitating a happy sex life for my partner? That uh, there's probably already a lot of great willingness to um, try different things and be understanding and open, and that's so much of the so much of the battle there um, already won just by having that understanding and that willingness, um, and then to talk about it, you know, because I think SSRIs or no SSRIs, like people in relationships just usually don't have the same, exactly the same interests, sexually speaking, the same levels of desire all the time. Like it is very normal and, and typical for people to be different in those respects. And so talking about it and learning more about what your partner actually does want and does like and, um, exploring that together, I think is not just important when there's problems, but that's what, you know, builds a good foundation for a happy sex life for everybody. Um, this is, a this is a fun specific question. Sometimes I squirt and I'm worried if it's pee. What is it really? I remember that was one that was asked. Uh-huh. That was yeah. asked and I probably like shocked and awed them with my response because I, I was like, it's pee. It's pee. <laughs> probably pee. It's probably pee. <laughs> so there are glands around the urethra and there are glands in the vulva um, that provide lubricant for female uh, sexual activity. And there are some glands that can release during orgasm. Um, and some of that fluid can have, can be very, very similar to prostate uh, or male secretion. So, but the size of those glands, they're very, very small glands. So if, if somebody is saying that they squirt to the point of, you know, saturating the mattress or saturating the sheet or whatever else, it's probably of a volume that can't be explained by the size of those glands. Also, if you can check that fluid, uh, you know, research or scientific-wise, and you can have it test positive for urine to prove it. And so, you know, I, I kind of threw it out there and said, hey, it's just urine, because I mostly wanted to play with people's reactions of like, so what? Mm-hmm. So if it was pleasurable to you, and now that you know that it's urine, it's not pleasurable to you, what changed except for your knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And, and why, why would you let that knowledge change what was otherwise an enjoyable sexual experience? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why I did the, the shocking thing. Of, eh, it's probably pee. If it's of a significant volume, it's, it can only be held by that uh, of a bladder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing to think about is squirting's kind of become this trendy new sexual thing because of media. 
and videos and, and having women squirt and you can watch videos specifically just to, to watch that. Um, and in a lot of those performances, it is volume enhanced for <laughs> cinematic effect. So again, if you're trying to do something that you watched on a video, know that those videos are enhanced or faked um, in one way or another to get the desired off factor for it and doesn't always represent physiologic reality. Most women don't have huge volumes released um, with sexual activity. That said, I think an important thing is if a woman experiences bladder leakage in other parts of her life, coughing, sneezing, laughing, um, or what we call stress incontinence, she can also lose urine with physical activity by just having the penis push up on the bladder or push up on the anterior side of the vagina. And that can be a very distressing or a reason that a woman limits her sexual activity because she doesn't want to have leakage of urine. Um, so a midurethral sling is one surgical treatment for stress incontinence and can change uh, the leakage during sexual activity as well. Um, very, very rarely a midurethral sling, because the incision for it is in the anterior vaginal wall, can have uh, bothersome sexual side effects or loss of sensation. Or if a woman enjoyed that leakage that she didn't know was urine and now that got quote-unquote, fixed because of the surgery can be distressing to her because she didn't expect that part to go away. Mm -hmm. So if sexual activity or leakage uh, is important to you and you have bladder leakage, make sure you discuss with your surgeon what your goals and expectations are because uh, certainly any intervention for urinary incontinence could change sexual function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say, too, to think about, I mean just addressing some of those things in a practical way. Like there's fluids that squirt out during lots of sexual activities and um, having, you know, having a towel, having things that can help to, you know, clean up that mess. Uh, I think can help people not be so worried about it and just adopting that as something a part of standard practice, right? Something that is just a part of what you do, I think can, help deal with some of the, some of the worry or, um, feeling like that's, yeah, just something that you don't want to have happen. Um, that also what you said about, uh, that changing the thinking, like if you liked it before and then you find out it's pee and it changes your, the way that you think about it. I recently read an article that looked at women who were, who were diagnosed with HPV, human papillomavirus, um, which is a sexually transmitted virus that uh, can cause genital warts, can cause changes in the cervix that can result in cancer, not usually, but can, um, and were detected with HPV. They did a study and they looked at um, some of the women were given uh, information that said, that explained that HPV is a sexually transmitted infection and it can cause these complications and here's how we treat it. Um, the other women just got information that said um, HPV uh, is a virus that can cause these kinds of changes in the body, and here's how we treat it. The group that had the information that clarified that this was a sexually transmitted infection uh, experienced significantly higher levels of shame and distress about their about the diagnosis and the treatment and, and all parts of that. So it totally changed once they had that new view that, oh, this was something that happened from sex. This had to do with sex, that it changed their whole experience. Whereas before, 
they had actually very low levels of stress and no shame attached to that. It was just a medical issue that was going to be taken care of. So we do have, we have a lot of baggage around mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of these things and uh, stuff that is happening up in our heads that cause us to judge certain parts of our experience uh, in, a, in a certain kind of way. Uh, okay. Uh, so this question is, what is the line between trying new things your partner likes and not wanting to do something like wanting to please them sexually, but not cross my own boundaries? Oh, that's a good one. Really good question. That's a really good question. Tracy. Yeah. Let's hear you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I think that, that, um, what comes to my mind is, um, you know, really, helping people to get in touch with, um, what they, what they really want and don't want and, and where are their maybes? Like I actually have a handout that I have folks do sometimes that's, um, making a yes, no, maybe list that includes different, uh, forms of affection, physical touch, sexual touch, sexual activities, um, so that they can get a little more clear. Cause actually most people are never really, given a lot of permission to get specific. Like sex is something that um, really in our culture still is kind of um, expected to be saved for marriage or some really, you know, committed loving relationship. And outside of that, uh, especially growing up, no one's really invited to say, what do you, what do you think you want when it comes to sex? And what would you really like? And what would make that really good for you? That doesn't happen. So, um, so people kind of come into that with not necessarily a lot of self-awareness or understanding, um, and not a lot of information. So, um, often the maybe list is the longest list. <laughs> there's some things that feel like a clear no, um, some things that feel like a clear yes, but there's a lot of stuff in the maybe category. Uh, and then I do think it's very important to, um, help people to feel really solid in their boundaries and the things that do feel like a clear no to feel like that's okay to have um, clear ideas about what you don't want to do with another person or to have done with your body and, um, and then to practice communicating that. So, um, you know, in some of the same ways, I, I think people get more sort of encouragement around saying no than saying yes. So um, you might talk about, uh, it, as much as it's important to know what, what are your boundaries and what, and how do you say no to that? Um, what are the things that you would like and how might you say that? How might you ask for what you want or give feedback to help someone give you more of what you're wanting than what's currently happening and to really practice that? Cause those are skills that just are not encouraged in our general kind of culture and society, um, specifically around talking about sex. I love that. Can I can I role play for a second? Yeah. Okay. So I am a I'm in a monogamous relationship. I am let's say I'm in my mid fifties, so there might be some hormone changes going on. I love my husband dearly, but I've been faking orgasms, and I have come to the point where I realize that I want more out of my sexual relationships. Now, how do I tell my husband that? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, that. Uh... Oh, that's so common. So you are common. not alone. So common. So common. Um, and I would say 
women, women of all ages, uh, often find themselves feeling pressured to fake orgasms or fake pleasure to spare their partner's feelings because, um, there again, we don't, we just don't really get taught how to talk about sex. And we see these models presented to us of, you know, couples having intercourse in the movies and both people always seem like they're having a great time. They usually both have orgasms at the same time, seemingly, right? That's, that's the idea. So that's what's supposed to happen. And so if that's not what's actually happening, there's a lot of pressure to pretend like that's what's happening, um, both to spare the partner's feelings and also to feel, uh, to kind of cover up some worry that maybe what's happening for me isn't normal. I should be having an orgasm now, so I'll pretend that I am. And um, so that actually can be hurtful. That can be really hurtful. I think most partners want to actually be giving their partners real orgasms and, and don't want their partners to do things that they don't want to do um, or to fake pleasure, right? Um, that's not 100% true. We know that there are, there are partners out there who do not have those, have those goals or values, um, and that is a problem. But in general, I'm talking about, and most of the people that I talk with um, genuinely do care about their partner's good time. So it's hurtful to hear that, um, that there, there was some inauthentic <laughs> things happening. So I would say, I think it's important to think about why, why you were doing that. So why, why did it feel important to fake orgasms? You want to role play? Oh, that? okay. We're yeah. Role playing. Okay. Uh -huh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, for, probably for several reasons, right? Like, I didn't know how to have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. I assumed he knew how to give me an orgasm, and I was being inadequate by not having an orgasm with that um, and not knowing how to ask for what I actually needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and maybe because now I'm giving you, like, five reasons why people mm -hmm. do this. But, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, another one of just, like, I'm not having pleasure, so I just want it to end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so to find a way to share that, right, to, to share that with a partner, I think um, when, I, when I hear that, so as a sex therapist, I, I get really excited, actually, when a client comes in with this kind of situation and they're saying, I want to change this. I actually, I really want to have an orgasm. I, I want that for myself. If I can have that with a partner, that would be great, too, but I, I'm ready to get more real and stop faking it. Um, because there, that is really exciting. And there's a lot of really, uh, wonderful stuff that we will do to, to discover, um, how this can happen, but to, to just, uh, I think kind of, um, make that important confession is powerful. Like I, I didn't know how to do that myself. And I didn't want you to feel responsible for doing something that I don't even know how it could work. Um, uh, that that's not a bad thing to say to a partner. That's a really, um, really important, uh, and really powerful thing for them to know. Uh, I think the, the thing that's tricky is that, um, it's not actually feeling good. And so I just wanted it to be done again, that that can be hurtful to hear. 
And when that is framed as I, I didn't really know how to change it and I didn't really know what to say about it. And I've just felt kind of stuck and I want to change that. I want it to be better. I want to share something better and be able to be more open and more honest and, and let's, let's fix this. You know, that's, I would say that's where I I think the messaging needs to also really include, um, what are we wanting to move towards? Right. Cause if in, in sharing this, we're saying this has been happening. Um, and that's a, that's a problem. Like we want to stop doing that. And then what do we want to do instead mm-hmm. in there? There's lots of, I think there's opportunity, there's hope, um, you know, relationships benefit from that kind of honesty and authenticity. And when it is provided in a way that is not, um, like blaming, right? Like this is, this is your fault. Um, I, I think we can generally blame society <laughs> or culture for all of these problems. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, talk about how are we going to make it better? I liked how you gave some concrete examples of how to frame that in, in allowing the woman to take partial ownership mm-hmm. for get, for being in that situation. Cause I think a lot of women think that they're stuck in the, well, I'm going to tell him that he's not good enough or, or I'm worried that his ego and the, you know, he's going to be hurt because he's not being good enough. And, and the way you frame that of saying like, Hey, I'm part of this too. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to make this better for us instead of just saying, you know, you aren't doing it good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is, is good as far as growth mindset goes mm-hmm. and, and not making it kind of one versus the other. Instead, mm-hmm. it's kind of a team that wants to, wants to change. Mm-hmm. So that was awesome. Thank mm. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've heard you say this before, Kelly, just that, that whole idea that if you don't know how to have an orgasm yourself and, and what can provide that, that experience, then it's, it's a lot to expect that another person is going to be able to figure that out and provide that. Like sometimes that might happen, but usually, you know, almost always um, the best way for someone to have an orgasm and then be able to share an orgasm with a partner is to masturbate and to learn themselves all by themselves um, what feels good and what can provide the kind of stimulation that contributes to an orgasm. And, um, so there's a question, one of the last questions was, what's your best advice for someone who is scared to have sex for the first time? Can I like masturbate, (laughs) 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 know your body, um, practice, you know, like have, have some orgasms, know what, know what gives you pleasure and, um, you know, have something that you can, uh, help direct your partner to do or ways that you can give feedback because you already know some things about what feels good to your body. Um, I think that's really important. And that is so, you know, I've taught sex ed for years and years and there's, there's not a single sex ed curriculum that I have seen, uh, let alone the ones that actually get taught in schools that, even touches on the pleasurable aspect of sex that is not discussed at all. Um, and masturbation is never encouraged. We don't 
we don't talk about that like that's a good thing, like that's a beneficial thing um, and a way to prepare to have a better sexual experience with a partner sometime later. So, um, so I think that that's, that's my first best advice is to, is to know your own body and have some experiences of sexual pleasure with yourself uh, before joining into some kind of shared sexual experience with a partner. Yeah, I, everything you said, yes. And, and reframing it of like, I think a lot in our society, it's you just need to get the first time over with is kind of this societal viewpoint on it or like it's just going to hurt so do it and get it over with like it's this hurdle you have to jump through mm-hmm. before sex gets better and I would I would challenge the validity of that thought of like if if you're you know significantly nervous or anxious or worried then that might be your body saying not yet or not with that person mm-hmm. um, and, and the more you learn about yourself and the more you realize what's comfortable and enjoyable for you then, you know, think of it as like, you, you need to go to this deep end of the pool, right? And you can either like just jump in, which is going to be kind of shocky. Maybe the water's going to be really cold. It's going to be deep. You're not going to touch the, like, it's good. That's a really kind of traumatic way to do it. Or like start in the shallow end. So you get used to the water and you get used to your body moving in, in water. And then you can, you know, jump, you know, swim out to that, that deep end instead of kind of that, shocky Mm -hmm. jump uncomfortable just get it over with and now you're you know in over your head or you regret it and so I just I I encourage people to reframe this like this big first time as as you know you just need to do it and it's going to be bad and it's going to be no it doesn't have to be that way Mm -hmm. um so I would just encourage reframing Mm -hmm. that question Mm -hmm. yeah great okay one more we'll we'll do one more this is the one that I think we both said uh is probably the most common oh, question yeah, this is huge. either of us see. For couples with competing sex drives, one high, one low, how would you recommend finding ways to meet both needs without either feeling neglected or uncomfortable? Yeah, so super common question because when there's two people involved in anything, tastes are, and tastes and enjoyment are going to be different. Like, what happens when I go to a restaurant and my boyfriend doesn't want to order the same meal that I want to order? Well, that's okay, right? There's a lot of different options there. And it's not it's not your job to match the other person's interests and flavors, right? So I was giving a talk down in Seattle and a woman came up after the talk and she said, you just explained something about my divorce 20 years ago. And that's when I knew I kind of struck a nerve on like talking about these things and having it be so huge is our society or the way we're trained women are kind of shamed for not having the sex drive that matches their partner. And stereotypically, certainly this is not how it always is. Stereotypically, in a heterosexual relationship, the woman has a lower sex drive than the man. And that's kind of where the struggle comes in. And it's very empowering to say, it is not your job to rise, to elevate your sex drive to match somebody else's. It's their job to take care of their needs so that they feel fulfilled and then meet you where you are willing to be met. Um, and that's kind of like crack the box open, mind blowing to a lot of people because they've never even heard that that's the positive. You're not the, the low sex drive person is not the broken one. You're just the person with your sex drive of you and the other person is their sex drive of them. And you need to figure out how to make it work for both of you. And the most, you know, kind of aha, duh, is like the high sex drive person can figure out how to get their needs met without always trying to drag you up to their sex drive. 
Yeah. And I just would say too, again, even the framing of this, like with competing sex drives, um, it is just very typical. Usually people in any relationship, heterosexual, gay, whatever, like two people don't have, aren't exactly matched in terms of their level of desire for sex at all times. So to expect that as a normal part of a relationship and an area to negotiate similar to preferences for food, preferences for how you keep house, you know, there's all these things that are normal parts of relationships that we negotiate because we aren't all the same. So, uh, so I think to just have that mentality about that is important. And then also to think about it in terms of when we enter into a relationship, to what extent do we see ourselves as responsible for our partner's sexual needs? And um, do we see our, our partner as responsible for our sexual needs? Sometimes, even as people struggle with, uh, you know, a really different um, level of desire for sex, uh, one wants it a lot, one doesn't want it as much, um, that... Uh, there still is this idea that all of the needs should be met by each other. And some people have a hard time thinking that it's okay for their partner to go and masturbate because um, that, that shouldn't happen. If you're in a relationship, you have a partner, anytime you want sex, it should happen with a partner. And I think that's just not, uh, it's not that realistic. Um, And there's lots of other, again, aspects of our relationship where, you know, we like doing things together and we like doing some things apart. And so not feeling like it, it has to be this, um, this responsibility, like, um, my partner is responsible for meeting all of my needs. I am responsible for meeting all of theirs. Uh, I like how you said that there's kind of some responsibility, uh, that one, oneself has to, um, think about how they can meet their own needs and negotiate what they want to share with their partner. Then the last idea they have about that is, um, you know, sometimes what the real issue is, isn't so much um, lack of desire for sex, but lack of interest in the way that sex happens in the relationship. And uh, Oh my God, that's this, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> totally yeah. mind. <laughs> so so that we make this assumption like, oh, well, they don't want sex. It's like, well, that's not necessarily true. They just might not want, um, you know, seven minutes of penis and vagina intercourse and then it's over. You know, they, they might really like something else instead or in addition to. And so not just assuming that because someone isn't interested in sex, the way that it's happening necessarily means that they don't want sex. Uh, sometimes people do really experience, you know, just generally low desire, but actually a lot of folks have, you know, they can experience some, arousal. They can experience some interest. They just don't like what's being served up every time. And, and that needs to change in order for them to be more interested. Yeah. And I think for the, the higher desire person, you know, and again, sorry for the stereotypes, but in a heterosexual couple, the man um, wanting sex more than the woman is, dude, if you care about her pleasure first and put her pleasure and orgasm first and make sure she has a fantastic time, odds are she's going to want to join you on that journey a heck of a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I would, I'd, again, reframe that question to be like, how can, we, how can you make it enjoyable for both people? And you might notice that that kind of 
natural sex drive goes up. Mm -hmm. So pay attention to your partner. Make sure her orgasmic equality can be matched, and you might have a much more willing partner. Mm -hmm. Tips and tricks at the the end of question (laughs) and answer. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for for joining me today and talking about these questions. Like we have this huge pile of questions from these college students and they've just been like great, great topics for this talk. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if you guys follow us on Facebook at You Aren't Broken and you can even private message your questions and I would love to do this again with some more questions um, because I think these questions and concerns are universal. I agree. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. If you love what you were listening to here, please leave us a message on You Are Not Broken on our Facebook page. Let us know what questions we can answer for you. And until next time, remember, you are not broken.